Um, you know, it reminded me of two, two things came up for me with the term, and I'm not, I wasn't uh, totally sure if you're familiar with them, but, uh, you know, personalism is a theological um, movement, I guess, within Christianity. Mm. Have a lot of similar aspects, kind of the, the sacredness of every individual personality, every single thing in creation, and was uh, very instrumental to Martin Luther King Jr.'s understanding. Um, of the world and of the uniqueness of each individual and our interdependence with everyone hmm. so that, um, you know, I can never be who I ultimately should be until everybody else is ultimately who they are. And so we get this kind of, you know, mutual network of interdependence where justice anywhere, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So I was reminded of that as I read some of your book, um, and also, interestingly, I don't know if you um, know this, but, uh, you know, who coined the word personalism in English was Walt Whitman, um, actually in a, his uh, very well-known treatise on democracy, Democratic Vistas, and mm -hmm. of democracy from kind of this deep spiritual sense um, that of a, a society that allows for the blossoming of every unique person every unique personality in its fullness and divinity. It was kind of his understanding of democracy, and he coins the word personalism in that treatise. Mm. So it reminded me of those two things as well, and, and you're coming from a Hindu perspective, and mm. um, a particular Hindu perspective, but so much overlap and beauty in it. Hmm. Thanks for sharing, Rory. I, actually, to be honest, I was aware of the notion of personalism in Christianity and, and in connection to Dr. Martin Luther King. But what you mentioned about Walt Whitman, I was not aware of, of all at all about that. So interesting because what we, you were describing about it, it kind of resonates with what I was, I'm trying to talk about in connection to radical personalism while ignoring what other people, how other people reach a similar place without me knowing that. So that's for me always those, the most mystical ways that you can, acknowledge this type of thing is quite humbling. You know, it's, it's not about me, it's about each of us sincerely trying to reach similar conclusions without knowing each other, but being on the same page nonetheless. So thank you, thank you so much for that. So anyhow, today's topic with Rory McKenty is New Monasticism. And that's the title of the episode. And I, ca and I just realized one technical detail that I forgot to start the streaming immediately as usual. I started a few seconds later so all of you who are connected live and just suddenly, so our streaming suddenly starting without the classical introduction, for, forgive me for that. That was a little technical detail, but here we are back on track. So today's title is A New Monasticism. And this topic or this title was chosen basically because as you may have heard, Rory co-authored a book with Adam Bucco called A New Monasticism. And me being a monastic as well, I'm always passionate about different ways of approaching or conceiving and embracing monasticism. And, and as usual, the, the need for a new type of that or a new language or a new way of conceiving, not only monasticism by everything, but everything like we talked last week with Ilya Delio, where we talk about the new language for the future. So we always needed something new in the sense of keeping up with the pace of an ever-evolving transcendence. So... As usual, I'll read a brief section from my book in which I touch upon the topic, and then I'll invite Rory to unfold upon that and continue sharing. 
So this section is connected to my book in page 117, and it's called Radical Personalism in, in connection to radical, sorry, radical monasticism <laughs> in connection to radical personalism. So it says like this, <clears throat> the, way, the way monastic life is currently conceived, over-idealized, and implemented in many Gaudiya communities needs to be rigorously reviewed and properly adjusted to the needs of the present time. We call this radical monasticism. So basically this section is what inspired the title for today's episode, A New Monasticism. So I don't know, Rory, if some thoughts come to your mind immediately like a kickstart regarding what I've just read in terms of the need of maintaining the notion of monasticism updated, upgraded to present day challenges and, and also maybe the potential pitfalls of conceiving monasticism in a very limited and narrow-minded way as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so what would I, I mean, it, you know, in your book, you're speaking a lot to the uh, Gadia community, right? I don't know mm -hmm. if is that right? Is that the right pronunciation, Swami? Which words you use, sorry? Gaudia. Gaudia. Yeah, Gaudia. Yeah, Gaudia. Yeah, well, yeah, will be a name for our particular Vaishnav community. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I loved what you wrote on it. Um, and, you know, you're addressing a context of, of a lot of kind of traditional monasticism in there. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, I love the way you talk about how you can over-idealize uh, that state in many traditions, not all, but certainly uh, some, you know, that's been considered the kind of traditional monastic life as the ultimate way of pursuing union with God or awakening in the Buddhist context. Mm -hmm. um, though other traditions, such as Judaism and Sufism, um, you know, actually don't allow for any monasticism. <laughs> mm. They'll have, um, you know, obviously spiritual aspirants that become teachers and remain completely committed to the transformative journey. Um, so I love the way you set it up there. And I love the way you talk about um, the danger of over-idealizing, both for the monks themselves, um, mm -hmm. in the sense of either feeling superior or also in the situation of having to take on the many projections that come often from lay communities who might perceive uh, that kind of life as the, as the real way towards God and then to give blessings to them, but how to kind of humanize it so that this idea of, of growing into our full humanity, I resonate with so strongly with what you wrote in the book. Um, hmm. I think it's the reason we're here um, I think we're here to become God through human life and bring certain qualities into the cosmos, into the universe, into realms of heavens uh, that can't be born any other way. Hmm. So the, the growing into our full humanity is really what it's about, which, of course, at that stage is really a, a transformation into divinity or an awakening to the true nature of reality. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you too for that kickstart. And I appreciate the points that, that I made, not because you are appreciating my own points, but because I think those are important points which are not my own regarding how monasticism, at least again, it's maybe my own religious PTSD, and I'm just talking about what I've been going through in my own community, although I know that this is the case in other communities as well, as you mentioned, that 
sometimes monastics are put into the superhero archetype, so to say, and there is a, an, an excessive degree of idealization. And therefore, if we, if we over-idealize someone, you are dehumanizing the person, basically. And, and the danger for the monk, and, and I talk by personal experience, the danger for entering to that space and starting basically to perform, you know, like, like to act according to the, the crowd's expectations. And basically, you lose yourself and your own identity, and you just become a a character, an actor of the circumstances, basically, whatever the audience is, is expecting. And, and the point is, if they are over-expecting, you need to enter into an, an almost impossible superhero archetype that in time, many times, ends up is in, in isolation or even in monks engaging in forms of abuse <laughs> because they, they force themselves to be in such a forced superficial situation that they can no longer sustain that and that somehow implodes or explodes in this case in unfortunate dynamics. So, so yeah, I, I tried and I wanted to, to make that point to begin with that whenever we speak about monasticism, at least in some communities, as you mentioned, not all of them are like that, but the importance of humanizing the monk and therefore humanizing monasticism as, as, as you mentioned, as our part of trying to humanize everything. It's not just let's humanize monasticism, but let's humanize everyone and everything basically. So, I'm, I'm interested, Swami. Can I ask you a question? All the ones I want. Part of my monastic vows is no private life. <laughs> no private life. That's a big one. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering. I guess so. I wanted to ask you what uh, would be because I think that there is even a broader discussion here where. So uh, particularly when it comes to holding the place of a, being a monk um, and then the projections that often come with that uh, mm -hmm. from those in the community or other lay practitioners, uh, you know, can also put uh, you in a very powerful spot. And I, so I think this is a conversation that also has meaning for spiritual teachers more generally and really anyone in any type of leadership, even though it's a bit more subtle when the spiritual energies begin to be projected. Um, there's a sense of power that comes with it. Um, mm -hmm. And not just a sense of power and that people are looking up to you, but like actual real energetic power because people are projecting their energies forward. And you feel this, I think, when you stand in that position, you can feel a kind of raising up of your own being, which is riding on their energies. Um, and so it's easy to fall into either a kind of idea that this is really me rather than the projected energies um, or, or that, uh, you know, I really do hold this kind of superior position when really it's more a functional role in many ways. Um, and so I guess my question is, do you, what are some of your suggestions or thoughts mm. on what to do when that happens? Mm. What helps to bleed off some of that? How do you hold it as a spiritual teacher um, when you find yourself in that position and aware that there are projections and because I can't say that I have a, you know, the naming the problems is sometimes, you know, maybe that's the best step in being aware of them, but coming up with solutions can be more difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for the question. It's a question that I myself made to me a few times in order to survive my role, so to say, <laughs> And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I basically framed that myself in my own mind in a very similar way. Like 
sometimes you can be, as you mentioned, performing a particular function or role as a teacher, not necessarily as a monk, as you mentioned, as a teacher, as a leadership figure. And so much of people's attention to begin with is invested in, in you and what to speak of people's faith, people's trust, people's admiration. So as you mentioned, it's a very powerful wave of that is converging in this single point of this particular personality. And that's real, that's there. And as, as the person on the stage, so to say, receiving such a wave, I will say you have two options. One, like the one you mentioned, like I start to think, okay, it seems that I am here I am, just descended to redeem the whole planet Earth or whatever. <laughs> or be humbled by that and perceive how you are being empowered by that people. They are empowering you. It's not so much I'm here empowering them. They are, I, I'm, I'm just like serving as an vessel, so to say, to receive all that energy myself and then to do something with that and give that back to them in service. They are empowering me and I will empower them through the empowering that they are sending to this particular spot called, in this case, Swami Padmanabha or whomever. But I'm humbled by that and I'm committed by that particular energy they are sharing with me and, and I will give that back in service. So at least for me, that has been the the only way to survive those waves. And interestingly, I also recall one, one teacher, former teacher that, that I had some years ago. And unfortunately, he ended up indulging in a certain in different forms of abuse. But it's interesting that for some time, many of us will think in our first years, wow, he's so empowered. We felt the energy, we felt the but actually, and we but we as we committed a mistake, and I acknowledge that myself of ascribing all that power to him as a separate individual, while actually all that power was coming from the thousands of followers that were praying for him, thinking about him, worshiping him. So he was receiving that, and that was empowerment. And we noticed that because when he, so to say, his abuses became apparent, and so many thousands took a distance from him. He, did, he didn't have that energy any longer. Yeah. So, exactly. so that was for me also like an epiphany, like realizing that point that you are asking about, like, wow, we are actually empowered by the generosity of other people's attention and prayers. And we have a big commitment of what to do with that. Again, not taking that like it is about me, but I'm humbled by that. And this further commits me as a servant of them. I mean, as you mentioned, being in a, in a pedestal or being in a stage or being a leader is just a role or we will call it in our tradition a service. So someone has to perform that service. So I'll do that, but as a service. So yeah. that's what comes to mind in this moment. I don't know if you have any further reflection because that's a very important point for sure. Uh, I love, I mean, I love the discussion and what you said about it. It's interesting because it was so much of just kind of what was coming up in my mind. So just how you described it um, you know, where the energy comes in from others and that it's really a function, or I even think of it as vocational. Uh, mm -hmm. and you write about it in the new monastic book that, you know, there's different vocations that could be, look like it could be a teacher, it could be a mother, it could be an administrator, it could be, uh, in the Christian tradition, you have the idea of the mystical body of Christ and everyone plays a role that's harmonized by, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 
by God and by divinity. Very similar to the way you describe um, our kind of service in heaven and our individuation process. Hmm. Vocationally, some people will be called to be teachers. I find a lot of students think that's the end game of the spiritual journey, but that's Hmm. not true. The end game of the spiritual journey is our transformation into divinity, the removal of negativity, so that our full humanity can flourish, which can look like many different things. Uh And one of those things is a spiritual teacher, uh, and it performs a particular function within kind of, you know, the, the general evolution of humanity. So I love thinking about it that way. Um, and, you know, it reminds me of, well, of Father Thomas Keating in particular, one of my close teachers. Yeah. I was just thinking about him. I want to ask you regarding your experience with him in, in this connection, this topic. So it's very interesting. So my, um, you know, there's the one-on-one work that's done with the spiritual teacher, which is a bit um, unique, I would say, in its own way. It has to do with, you know, learning to be a student and learning to develop a certain kind of inner awareness so that when you're with your teacher, there's always this kind of dual, you're really using your teacher as a mirror. You have awareness of what's going on in your interior life, uh, everything from your thoughts to the emotions in your body. And the teacher becomes a kind of vehicle or doorway to help orient you around it, Mm -hmm. to let go, what to embrace, what to challenge you to see if you actually accept it and embrace something or let it go. Um, but, you know, it, it, they become a wonderful tool in a sense for you to use in your struggle for your to grow into your full humanity. So that's kind of the more one-on-one relationship, I think, that happens. But in the context of our conversation, um, you know, I think of Father Thomas and there were certain kind of configurations and situations where I felt he was able to kind of play his role with his unique gifts and service in a functional way, you know, in the best way possible. And you kind of knew what that took. It took, it took a group of people, you know, eight to 12, 20 often sitting in a circle, but then also allowing him the space to kind of do his spontaneous, um, thing spontaneous <laughs> ability to teach and it would be the most amazing extraordinary um stuff that would happen and come out that you just kind of got used to it and let it wash over you but i was also very aware that it sort of took certain dynamics in place and a certain um a certain acceptance from the people who are going to receive it to allow it mm-hmm. to happen Uh So there is this kind of play back and forth between someone who's in that functional role as a teacher and students or others that are gathered around them. Um, It's not something I've thought about a lot. Um, So this is a very interesting conversation, but there does seem to be a way where that energy is projected. It has to kind of hold the space. Everyone has to do their own individual work within it, but it allows the teacher to bring forth in their own unique way, because different teachers are different, you know, their gifts that they have to offer. Like you said, the energy goes out and gets filtered through and then comes back in a certain way. And I think it's unique for different teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I totally totally agree that there is no one, one size fits all formulas about how this is supposed to happen and how one has to express one's teacherhood so to say but but i appreciate the point you made on 
on the role of the of the audience on the hearers or the students so to say and in allowing the teacher to to give what he or she can give in full potential i i have in my own limited experiences as a mentor and speaker so many times i will say that my my best lectures so to say were those that i was so to say i, I allowed myself to be the most empowered by the audience so to say mm. so my my best lectures were not actually mine <laughs> but were maximum 50 percent, 50 percent probably the audience gave more than 50 percent and i would just kind of a bestseller receiving their their attentive presence their sincerity their absorption their their appropriate questions so all that was like triggering further empowering and i was just like the one who had to open the mouth in that context so to say but i personally will feel as i say sometimes even lectures i sometimes say things that i'm surprised saying that and i say like wow that was cool that thing that i just say was cool but but it was not me it was not mine i mean i was not thinking about saying that at all and and then i look at the audience and and i feel their presence and their sincerity and i felt oh if that was not me that was all of you actually yeah. triggering yeah. triggering that in me but also again as you mentioned before as to balance that equation as a potential pitfall so to say sometimes the audience may be there uh yeah basically over idealizing you and the teacher or the speaker or the leader has to to detect that for what it is and, and know how to manage that particular energy so to say that, that it may be coming to you and you may feel okay this is not so accurate and i will say that part of the role of the teacher is to to teach the student not to over idealize him or, or her and how to direct that same energy in a more realistic way so to say without the need of you have to be my superhero uh, but I can continue being your mentor or your guru or your whatever, your guide without the need of superhero archetypes, but by invoking proper proper humanity again. No? And, and I think that's, yeah, that helps me and other guides and speakers I've talked to in terms of keeping sober in that role, like having human connection, peer one-on-one relationships, especially friends that you can share as equals and peers and not just from a hierarchy, teacher, disciple, and the only surrounding you have is always students of yours. Yes, so I've, I've seen in time that's that gives lots of sobriety and and protection, basically. Yeah, I think that's key, and I love how you call it protection. Mm. I think that's a wonderful way of of thinking of it. And it was, and I know we've talked about a few when you were visiting here. We talked a little bit about that, and yes. I still do think that. Um, it's something I would like to still organize in the future, but having a venue or a retreat time where uh, people who are in that position and who mm. are serving as teachers could gather in a very collegial way, uh, mm. to be among colleagues and peers dealing with these issues and have a space to just be human in it and to mm. ask questions and to um, you know try to get some discernment around different issues uh, in a way where there's some understanding of the dynamics that happen. I yeah. think it's really beautiful. Because the other thing we've thought of, and I don't, I'm not sure you probably haven't, maybe haven't experimented with this much. And we haven't experimented with it a lot, but we've talked about it. <laughs> but it was the idea of always having kind of two teachers in a sense. 
Mm-hmm. These things, you know, so that the students see you in a human form and in a human way, but there still is some sense of the kind of um, the roles that w- the, that get played in these dynamics. So that there still is a sense of the teacher has a position and a, a role to play, um, but can also be a kind of collegial, normal human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, with others and get to be seen in that way with, you know, so that there's someone there that's not just playing the role of student around the teacher, but it's all, you know, I don't know if we have the answers. I think the, I think that these are real things that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also aware that in many traditions like Tibetan Buddhism and many Hindu lineages, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on seeing the teacher as a deity, as a guru, as an awakened person. Mm-hmm. In our discussion, we're just kind of playing here, but, you know, part of that probably is about this kind of energy transfer that happens. And if it can happen in the right way, it can be very powerful. But most people who are serving as spiritual teachers still have a long way, you know, still have a ways to go in their own journey. Mm-hmm. And then it be, can become, then it can become very problematic when you try to put <laughs> that kind of aura on them. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. In fact, in our many of our many scriptures, as I mentioned in my book, the guru is basically many ty- times is recommended to be seen as God Himself. Yes. Uh, but also, it's important to understand those statements in the context of the, when the scriptures are saying that the scripture, the texts are assuming that the person who is embodying that role of guru is in the highest possible stage. So they speak from that idealistic perspective, so to say. But if we as a reader do not understand that, we will over-idealize whomever is serving in that capacity. As as you mentioned, maybe most or at least many of the ones serving in that capacity may still have their way to go. So they are not necessarily to be fully uh, put in that particular situation, which doesn't mean they are failure, they are fake, we cannot learn anything from them, but just to understand from which place the scriptures say that and from which place we should approach that relationship or that, as you say, energy transfer in a way that is sustainable for everyone and does not end up in varieties of abuse. It is, has happened quite often, basically. Yeah. And, and I totally love this. And you already mentioned that when we met in Casa Mandala, this idea, and we will go maybe later to that point in connection to this about interfaith dialogue and so on and the Snow Mass Conference, but the idea of having leaders getting together in a retreat and not necessarily like being giving lectures to people, but just having what will I like to call peer review. You have peer review with the book, but you also have peer review, no? peer reviewing each other and editing each other, all the stages that a book is going through <laughs> and laying out each other. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. And on some level, we have started with a few friends, at least in our own Godia community, some meetings or retreats of that kind. But but I, I totally agree that it's never enough, and, and especially in connection to to leaders from other traditions and, and getting them together and and share this peer review, that will be so, so enriching. So please count on me for that one whenever that happens. So maybe we can see how to make that happen all together. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Rory, regarding the theme of 
monasticism that of course we touch upon that a little bit i'd like to ask you a little bit more since you wrote this book with adam on the new monasticism and that's the title of today's podcast so we already talked about a little bit about the the classical idea of monasticism no classical monastics like i don't know in my case i will be a sannyasi or a monk or a brahmacharya since sometimes it's called in our tradition but also we can speak about monasticism I don't know, like an, I think Raymond Parnikar will say as an, as an archetype, so to say. Now, the monastic, the universal monastic archetype, I think you quote that in your book as such. No? So I, I don't know if you would like to unfold a little bit this notion of, of this possibility of monasticism and how can that be a, a new form of monasticism? Yes, I would love to. Thank you, Swami. This is probably my favorite topic. <laughs> this is some stuff on inner spirituality. But, um, you know, as you mentioned in your book, Ramon Panikar, um, is where I first kind of got this notion of the new monk, um, and or at least putting language to it that resonated with me so deeply. There's a book called Blessed Simplicity. Hmm. Uh, it's actually a series of lectures he gave uh, to mostly monks in the Christian, Buddhist, and Hindu traditions, and then some lay uh, practitioners and even lay monastics. Hmm. Um, and in it, he talks about this idea of how, uh, what Panikkar means when he says the archetype of the monk or a universal archetype of monasticism is similar to saying, you know, that there are no special mystics. Every person is a special kind of mystic in a sense. Mm. Everyone is a special mystic. We're all mystics is the way Brother Wayne would say it. Another mm -hmm. way of saying it is that we're all called, which you are, is the point, I believe, of your whole book, that we are all called as human beings to this deeply transformative and very real journey um, into awakening, into God, into the deeper recesses of our nature, where love, compassion, wisdom, um, and the eradication of all negativities exists and is real and is our purpose for being here and also the best way we serve uh, not only the human family, but all of creation and all. And so if this is true, and Panikkar loosely refers to this as the archetype of the monk. Wow. And the reason he call, uses the monk is because when we think of a monk, one thing that comes through quite clearly in traditional monasticism is this complete and total life commitment. Mm -hmm. I mean, particularly celibate monks. Most traditional monks are celibate, not all Zen and um, some Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but, you know, the celibacy itself is a symbol of this kind of total life commitment. Mm -hmm. I am committed to the transformative journey, uh, to the deepest depths of reality, as my tradition or lineage understands it. And I give my entire life to this, and everything in my life must revolve around that. Mm -hmm. and so what Panikkar is saying is saying, you know, that's an archetype of living out the transformative journey. That same kind of commitment that same level of dedication, that same way of orienting one's entire life around this journey and this type of service can also be lived out in different ways. And the traditional monasticism is one way of living out this universal archetype that exists within all of us. And that all of us can learn a lot from because it represents 
you know, thousands of years of experiments in this transformative journey. And so new monasticism is just kind of, I think it's um, using the word monasticism. It, it's a traditional monasticism plus, right? Mm. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honorific because <laughs> the monasticism is representing that kind of total life commitment to one's spiritual transformation, one's spiritual journey and the spiritual journey of all of humanity and its broader effects across all of life. Um, and the new part is just recognizing that there are different ways that total commitment can be lived out. It can also be lived out in the world, among relationships, among, uh, you know, intimate relationships, both with friends as well as uh, partners, um, in families, all the, the difficulties that life brings, and that there are different ways in which this that commitment can be lived out. Mm -hmm. I think that would really be the, the key point of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm thinking about the, the very meaning of the word monk, that many basically the implications of monk is something that someone who is going into himself, so to say, no, like going into the inner chamber, no, embracing introspection and depth of thought. And as you mentioned, commitment to spiritual discipline as the all in all in one's life and and again that doesn't have to be limited to to a particular order in potential everyone can do that and and of course if we overemphasize that only monastics have the potential monastic classical monastic monastics are the one doing that thing that is dangerous in itself because you can just think okay now I'm a monastic so it means that by being a monastic and naturally I'm doing that thing and and not necessarily you can be a monastic and even using monasticism as a, a spiritual bypassing. As I, I've seen, I, I remember reading, I mean, Thomas Merton wrote a lot about that also, you know, like people who, who, run, who run away from life's uh, responsibilities or relationships and sometimes run into the monastery with the long list of unresolved human issues. Uh, but trying to convince themselves now I'm a monk, so it means I'm the highest of the highest, <laughs> yeah. and you are still pretty dysfunctional as dysfunctional as a human being, and, and, and probably in time your monasticism project will be unsustainable. Also, so I mean I'm saying that as a classical monastic myself, trying to <laughs> to have that in in in, in my own consciousness, no? Because again, in one sense everyone can be a monastic, and in another sense. The classical monastic does not necessarily mean a monastic in this substantial sense if the internal commitment to the journey is not present there. Yeah. So, so, and I appreciate your, your emphasis on this world of commitment to the practice or commitment to, to the ideal uh, uh, because that's, that, that gives so much hope and relief. And of course, it's also so challenging in, in the good sense of the term that implying Nobody is free from that challenge. I mean, if you want as a lay person to be a new monastic and to embrace full commitment to spirituality, you can do it. There are no yeah. obstacles like, no, no, I'm not a monastic in the classical sense, so I cannot do that. No, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so as a lay person, we don't have an excuse to escape from that. And as a classical monastic, we don't have an excuse to be in comfort like, I'm a monastic, I'm doing it really a higher. So it's a, yeah. in a healthy way, this notion of new monasticism presents a healthy challenge for both. For both sides. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. That's, you know, and there was, there's been some, you know, um, at times doubts about the use of the term and, um, you know, some traditional monastics that can rub the wrong way. Um, but I think in the way you're talking about it, it could be also be very helpful for both sides. It's, um, you know, and, and to recognize that you can make that level of commitment without it looking like traditional monasticism. And like you said, also to recognize that, um, you know, I kind of said the commitment is the key point, but I guess as we're talking, I also am beginning to see it. It's the, the first step, right? And then they're going through the whole transformative process, which encases much more. And so I think there's so much to learn from traditional monasticism as to what a kind of total commitment looks like. But then it can be, you know, that can be brought into different contexts, like one, a kind of outer commitment that you just mentioned. So the monk makes an outer commitment in his life or her life, goes into a monastery, uh, but and there can be an advantage to that that one is just kind of in a formation period then right mm -hmm. the rhythm of the other monks um help to form one one just kind of relaxes into the life allows that formation to happen uh but if one begins thinking oh i'm a monk now and it's just happening you know that begins to get in the way and there is a lot of issues with egos forming once one puts on a robe you know it, mm -hmm. it symbolizes who one is but of course, you know, as, as so many traditions tell us who one is, is actually ultimately God or emptiness or nothingness, mm -hmm. you know, nothing but the divine life, the Leela, the play of God. Mm. And that doesn't happen from putting on a robe or not putting on a robe, but from this kind of deep life um, and this deep commitment and mm. continual journey into God. Uh, and so, but things that traditional monastic life looks like, like a rhythm of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, making outward commitments that symbolize this inner commitment to the transformative process, daily prayer and practice, a sangha or a community to practice with that helps with one's formation, spiritual teachers and teachings from a tradition or traditions, uh, and studying those in a real heartfelt sense that these are all essential elements of a transformative path, whether you're in a traditional monasticism, there you're, you know, trying to do it in a different form out in the world. But so there's so much that can be learned into what often is most helpful in this transformative journey. And I just see a lot of um, possibility for a much greater interface between traditional monasticism and uh, other forms of commitment to the spiritual journey uh, that take place in other contexts. There's so much to be learned because traditional monastics have done this for so long. And at the same time, that learning can only really happen in its most fruitful way, I think, when there is a sense of equality present. And when it's really recognized that, you know, one doesn't kind of graduate into a traditional monastic life and the spiritual journey, but these are different archetypes, different ways of living out the same archetype. Mm -hmm. And they're that can be learned on both sides and mutual support for both that can grow out of it, I think, that'll look slightly different than it has traditionally. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. And that reminds me also, again, as you mentioned, the, the classical monastic, as well as ideally any type of monastic, if you're committed to the journey and willing to enter the transformative 
the transformations that will happen at every stage of that journey. I mean, you you have to to remain in what they call, I think it's the word is shoshin in Buddhism, like beginner's mind, to to remain yourself in that state of I never like okay, I'm a monastic now. I'm on the other side, but and in Sanskrit for us, interestingly, in in our tradition, someone is a sannyasi or a lifelong someone who took lifelong vows of celibacy, let's, let's put it like that. One of the main attributes of that person described in the scriptures is in Sanskrit called abhayatwa, which means fearlessness. So, so I read that fearlessness as the constant willingness to embrace what lies outside of the comfort zone. Because generally we are terrified about what's outside of the comfort zone and inhabiting the unknown and entering there but I think that's the duty of any real monastic, again, not only me as a sannyasi, but any type of monasticism to, to remain fluid, so to say, and liquid in that disposition and willingness to, to visit quite often what's going on outside of the comfort zone. Because if not, as you mentioned, these dangers of complacency are very quick to happen. Like I'm a monastic, or as you mentioned, I have my robes. Like if that warranties anything, that reminds me where I was talking with with Father Richard Rohr that I visited him in Albuquerque and he will explain that he generally doesn't use his Franciscan robes that often, although he loves them and he uses them when he gives masses here and there. But generally he says, I don't want to take myself too seriously. And and when I put those robes, you kind of enter into, okay, I'm super empowered, super special, or people start to look you at such as, so he emphasized I love the robes. I love the inner spirit of them, but I prefer to to not take myself so seriously in that sense and remain with secular clothes, so to say. So I, I appreciate his point. Although again, it's not that every single monk has to do like that, but the principle behind that is is, is very sobering. And I also agree with what you mentioned. This essential practice is that whether you are a traditional monastic or a new monastic. Like practices like scriptural study and sangha and daily practice and and creating some some dynamics in the daily life. I mean, whether you are an old school monastic, so to say, or, or a new school monastic, those things are like universal patterns that somehow or other are always there to to nourish our practice. And and I will like to emphasize this enough because sometimes it's also is tempting to fall into this like easygoing spirituality that you just said about everything is one and everything is beautiful but but sometimes we ended up just using the narrative to avoid the daily like the daily sitting no sitting in meditation sitting in prayer and and, and we said what someone realized will say what without the sitting so to say no <laughs> yeah what you what you need <laughs> you need uh you know one of the I think it's true in both traditional monastic life and kind of new monastic life. But one of the things to just, um, you know, all the impediments to, that can come up in, say, trying to live out this life while in the world, you know, mm -hmm. uh, having to deal with financial realities, having to go to a job, having children, mm -hmm. obstacles as we see them. Um, to daily practice or to being able to root in are actually great uh, gifts I have found in my experience. Uh, they're there. If you 
your level of commitment is kind of tried in the fire then. Can you get up a little bit earlier? Are you going to watch just some news or something instead of getting your daily practice in? Can you really carve out the space mm-hmm. in your life as a priority among all these competing uh, um, facets of life on your time? And if you can do that and you really are able to get in, it's like the practice, you know, you, the discipline of a practice gets into the bones, gets into your marrow uh, in a quicker way because of the obstacles. In fact, the obstacles are what allow us to sort of gain that kind of discipline in a way where it's just in our life then and there's nothing we can do about it. When the monastic rhythm in a traditional monasticism all of a sudden is so embodied that you can't do anything other than that in some sense. Yeah. Uh, and you know as soon as you're getting away from it because you can, you can, you have an awareness of it in your life and what that brings about. So that the obstacles are not really obstacles, but often gifts for our practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would think this is true in any journey uh, in whatever way it looks like. So it's yeah. certainly not an excuse uh, for getting away from these practices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Say that I'm so busy or I have all this other stuff going on. Uh, that's kind of the point. Those, that, all that other stuff is, is part of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I remember I, th- this idea came that I included in my book that w- when the heart is not in the right place, everything becomes an excuse basically. And when the heart is in the right place, on the contrary, everything becomes a, and Udipana, we will say in Sanskrit, like a stimulant, something that is triggering in a positive way our progress. No? So, yeah, yeah like, like we may need a new vocabulary to, to redefine or reconceive the word monasticism. We may need the same thing with the word obstacle. Again, we may be accustomed to use the word obstacle. Yeah. And we immediately conceive that in certain way as avoidable or something that I'll pray God to get me rid of that as soon as possible. And... In our tradition, we have a famous verse from a saintly practitioner. She is called Kunti, and she will pray to Krishna, send me more obstacles, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> and of course, it's not that she's a masochist or something. And, if, and, and we one studies her life in the Mahabharata, and her life has a pretty amount of obstacles, more than most of us handle within a whole lifetime. And instead, she's asking for more. So one may think, wow, this is strange. But actually, the thing is that she knows, and, and you mentioned, you hinted at that, that unless I'm being put to test, in one sense, I don't know who I am. Or I don't know, I don't know where I, I mean, it's easy to think I am here, I want this, but unless some test comes, I may not know where is actually my determination, my commitment, my ideal. So in that sense, she's asking for, problems or obstacles I take it she's asking for those challenges that help her to see more clearly where she is where she wants to be uh, and to exercise this healthy uh, yeah effort or sacrifice to to continue growing so I think that's an important point for us to to understand not not only that obstacles are in themselves like disguised blessings but also the importance of those as you mentioned to yeah, to further illuminate the path. No? They are not say, putting shadow in our progress, but they are shedding light if we have the proper the proper vision. I mean, proper vision, There's, as you mentioned, if there's proper perspective, there are no longer obstacles. 
Yeah. No, the only obstacle was for our lack of proper vision, so to say. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a hard lesson to learn at times. Sometimes yeah. we feel like we just have to endure for <laughs> a couple of weeks or months or years or even decades sometimes for it to really kind of sink into our bones. But we can always carry the knowing that there are no obstacles. Mm -hmm. And that they are all, that everything can be used in this transformative process. Which I guess kind of remind. I'm thinking of another, what I would say is a, a practice of monasticism, whether traditional or new monasticism in the world, um, for any kind of really committed spiritual journey, but getting, you know, getting to a point where, so maybe I'll start, you know, Brother Wayne Teasdale was my first teacher, and I became, you know, very committed to meditating. So meditating, he told me meditate twice a day, 40, 45 minutes each time. And so I was committed. I did that, you know, come hell or high water. <laughs> and at a certain point, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I was doing that. That could almost become a crutch, you know, as long as I'm doing, it's like the traditional monastic, the, some of the dangers of just becoming a monk. As long as I'm doing my meditation, I'm good, you know, yeah. and that, that can be the danger. And I remember Brother Wayne saying to me, you know, now you've gotten your meditation in your life. Now you have to get your life into your meditation. Mm. So that everything else becomes a kind of reflection of our spiritual journeys. So that everything that happens in our life can always reflect back to us, you know, what God is, where we are, what we're working on, what God is asking of us, um, and how we can best kind of move forward in this journey. Hmm. the depths of our spiritual journey, whatever it is. You know, I, I mentioned to you before we started this podcast today, getting bit by a rattlesnake earlier this week. Which How to integrate that into your spiritual practice also. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite, um, you know, I, I feel grateful for it now after having gone through and you know, I had to go to the hospital. And, but, you know, I was outside around the buildings. Um, I was in a bit of a hurry of maybe a little bit flustered. I had to check underneath them because I've been gone for two weeks and it was towards the end of the day. And you have to go under the buildings, just make sure there's no pipes leaking because we live in a very rural area. Um, and I just put flip-flops on and I was walking mm. quick outside the door and I think I must have stepped on the baby snake. Mm. I didn't even see it till it had bit me. But just to, it's so clear to me like that message of, you know, you, you have to learn to maintain an awareness of where you are, an awareness of your surroundings, of the life you're living with, you know, especially in moments where you might be becoming a little bit more flustered or trying to get in a hurry or feeling you have all this stuff to do. Those are all like signs to even calm down even more and just be present to where you are, where you're walking, how you're interacting with people. Um, and so it's a wonderful lesson in that regard. And like, this is no different in terms of it's exactly what traditional monasticism aims for, as well as any kind of, you know, new monasticism or commitment to a spiritual journey. Your entire life has to become a reflection of your practice and in a feedback loop to your practice in everything you do. Yeah, yeah, I totally appreciate it. And I, I totally agree with that. Our tradition will say basically exactly the same thing that we have a practice, but eventually our whole life has to become our practice. I mean, our whole life is non, is some, we reach some point of merging between practice 
in life, although we may spend our official 40 minutes of meditation or whatever hours or things we do every day, but as you mentioned, that's meant to overflow and spill and sprinkle onto every other activity I do on the rest of my day, because if not, we still keep this dualistic orientation as like, I've heard many in my own tradition saying like, okay, I have my spiritual life here and I have my material life here. So my spiritual life is my 40, 90 minutes of meditation. And my material life is the rest of the whole day. <laughs> so that's, that's very conditioning from the get go. No, that's very, not very generous for yourself because, uh, and, and you don't have time to do more meditation per day because you have other commitments. So you limit yourself to think, I can only have a spiritual life, one hour and 30 minutes of spiritual life per day and the rest 22 half hours, pure material life. Yeah. And, and, and that's such a dichotomy that we choose to create and to keep. No? And, and actually the idea, as you mentioned, and as your first teacher talk, told you, like, okay, you have a practice in your life. Now no? turn it around and make your life your practice somehow which is a challenge again, that, and that will show how seriously you are doing your practice. <laughs> yeah. if, if you are seriously doing your practice, it won't be lim that seriousness won't be limited to that practice only, but yeah. will naturally like express itself in so many, so many directions. Because if not, as you mentioned, there's this risk of mechanic, mechanistically just, okay, I have to do my meditation. I have to do my thing and yeah. okay, I did it. So yeah. I, I did my part, I'm saved, I'm correct, Krishna loves me, whatever the tradition, the conception. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and getting the point of, at least in my mind comes now, I remember, I think like Thomas Merton was with Professor Suzuki once in, maybe you know the story that they were together, uh, I think it was in Japan, and Thomas Merton says, okay, I was with him and, and he was conducting this famous tea ceremony. And he will pour the tea very like meditatively and very clear. And, and Thomas Merton said, and I would try to be as, as the best possible Buddhist I could be at that moment. <laughs> so he will be like very quietly watching, contemplating the situation. And Dr. Suzuki keeps pouring the tea on the cup. And when the tea, the, the tea is about to overflow, he keeps pouring tea and the tea starts to overflow in the cup and in the table. And, and, and until the whole jar is emptied and Professor Suzuki says to Thomas Merton, like, we both know this is not what it's all about. No. <laughs> it's not just about pouring tea on a cup, but it's about something else. No? So he was trying to show, yeah, let's be careful of just becoming attached to the, the mere mechanical perfor performance of the ritual and, and, and being able to grasp the, grasp the essence. And I will say one of the ways to grasping the essence is extending that to every single moment and especially the so-called ordinary moments of our lives. And, and I always love, again, Thomas Merton saying that. He said, our salvation begins in the most ordinary moments of our daily lives. Mm -hmm. I, I love that one. No? Yeah. So, yeah, for me, that's so much an essence of what monasticism and new monasticism has to do. Like, it's not just idealize yourself in a cave, idealize yourself in the mountain, in the monastery, but idealize yourself in the most ordinary moments of your day. Yeah. <laughs> and you have the challenge to perceive the divine speaking yeah. to you even through that. If you are doing your practice properly, you will find the divine, probably especially in, mo in those most ordinary moments, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think we need it as a human society. We need we need transformed teachers. We need transformed mothers. We need transformed you know accountants. We need transformed business people. You know that where their life is not. Cause there's no buckets, right? Like there's like you're, there's no spiritual life over here material. That's just excuses. It's always an excuse that when you're break, you know, like someone saying it's just a business decision. Well, there's no such thing as just a business decision. There's just yeah. decisions you are making. <laughs> we should all be very clear on that, you know? And so you can't, they're just they're not having the heart in the right place. Like you were saying, they're excuses if we're trying to, kind of create a dichotomy, which we do so easy. And, you know, I love the way you you talked about it as an overflowing. Mm. And this a little bit in your, you know, I can see Dr. Suzuki actually having like a teaching there with the, mm. you know, the overflowing cup. But I, um, it feels that, I don't know if it's a similar experience to me, but in my experience, uh, it has felt like, you know, the times of real, the spiritual practice, say meditation in the morning, right? Or a chanting, they're ways of, they're absolutely necessary. I mean, for me, especially silent meditation, it's a way of filling my cup in a way that I can't do where I, everything else is removed and that there's a kind of divine link that charges a battery or fills a cup. Uh, but then as you're going about in your daily life, uh, you know, there's a continuity of awareness. There's a string, right? And mm -hmm. as long as we maintain that continuity of awareness and everything, then we sort of have an avenue for this cup to overflow into or for this battery to discharge into as mm -hmm. it goes up. And that, that, you know, so I think the spiritual life is also about developing that continuity of awareness. It's not a singular realization. It's not... Um, you know, just a peak experience. It's yeah. learning to be in this awareness all the time, but then that allows you to understand more the need to recharge the battery, the need, the, the recognition that it's not coming from you, but we're all connected and there's a flowing through of life, just like when the teacher is with their students, you know, it's a reciprocity. And so, and your awareness will also tell you when, you know, that's running low and, Maybe you need to be away from other people for a little while and you need quiet time because your battery is discharged and you may have the awareness of it, but it doesn't mm -hmm. just come back online and refill. And so we need our practice to continually do that. Hmm. So there's a lot of subtleties that come in, you know, over the years when you are really committed to practice. And I think that can be so helpful for um, people on a journey. To, you know, begin to understand some of these nuances that will happen in their commitment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that having that clear how the journey will unfold, of course, each one's journey unfolds in a different way, but in general way, sometimes we may also have this over-idealization of how the journey should look like or how the proximity to the desired goal should look like and we again over idealize over expectations certain things to happen and we may be conceiving getting closer to the goal in terms as you mentioned of peak experiences or dopamine uh, peaks or something uh, and as you mentioned it's more about entering into a permanent awareness and unfolding that takes place not 
not necessarily only during one specific moment of the day, but ideally a con continuous unfolding in a daily basis. So I think that could be, yeah, that's so healing for many because I've known many cases which practitioners get so easily discouraged by having a very rigid idea of how the journey should look like and having these expectations and attachments to a certain result and feeling it's not working or I'm not working, I'm not worthy, this is not for me, I'm too low for that, God is not merciful enough, whatever, <laughs> so many. And, and the, very, the only thing was that they had the wrong expectation and the wrong conception and they need to, to refine it and to sometimes normalize it and sometimes to humanize it and sometimes to, again, conceive spirituality not so much in peak transcendent revelatory experiences, but probably constant awareness and on a daily basis and and i think many of these things also are very important in terms of the understanding that the material world doesn't need to be renounced so to this but consciousness must be reoriented that's that's the actual challenge you know like the field of absorption must change not so much i need to get out of this place so i will say that also that's an important point of the new monasticism, so to say, because sometimes some people may idealize classical monasticism, you get away from the world. And I understand the dynamics, but the point is new monasticism is inviting, leave your monastic commitment in the world, in the daily dynamics, and understand that there's no need to go anywhere in one sense. It's the only need is to become aware of, well, we need to become aware here and now, basically. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I love that part in your book of talking about, um, you know, it's it's not a, this was in Panikar's, very strong in Panikar's book when he talked about the new monk. It, it was interesting. He called it, he, he, he um, contrasted what he called a kind of a way of simplicity versus a way of complexity. Mm. And I know you use complexity in your book, but that, you mm. know, in, in one way which traditional monasticism often embraced is, you know, a complete simplifying of one's life. You get rid of all the material reality. You block off life and society and really kind of take this stance uh, that's countercultural, but also simplifies your life to just concentrate on the journey, which okay. I think is beautiful and wonderful and has a lot of lessons for how we should live even in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> our lives is the greatest thing we could do say for the climate crisis you know more than recycling more than anything else just simplifying one's life buying less stuff having less stuff not always needing a new this or a new that mm -hmm. we'll do a lot less resources that we'll be using and it clarifies what's important when you begin to simplify your life you can't just fill it up with all of this other stuff yeah um but Panikkar talked about the kind of new monk in this life in the world as also being a way of wanting to integrate complexity. Mm -hmm. And so that with, when we get these competing demands in material life or in human society, can our spiritual journeys at a similar level of depth begin to stand in there? Like you said, in a different way of consciousness, a different way of absorption that allows the space for these things to be integrated in a divine way, but in a way that's unique to oneself and one's own personality. Mm. Everything from intimate sexual relationships to friendships to um, how we make our money and how we survive financially 
in all of this with an equal level of trust in the divine guidance, an equal level of trust in the journey, um, and an equal level of willingness to give up our own lives to see where the journey takes us, all of a sudden you create this space in the spiritual journey and for these kind of deep energies to situations they haven't always been in. Like, they're, you know, in general, I think we don't have a lot of good teachings on sexuality and sexual relationships, you know, often because some of the, the we, you know, traditional monasticism eschewed those. And so what it kind of looks like, I'm not sure we know <laughs> that we need to allow the spirit itself or our divine personalities, the space and the freedom and the forgiveness uh, to put itself in situations where new insights can grow. And I think that's also some of the push of this new monasticism in trying to build an integrated society, a human society that supports this kind of flowering of every unique person mm. and their unique gifts and talents. Um, I, I know that I love that you brought the, the, the notion of integration of complexity because it's, even if I may sometimes use the same idea from a slightly different angle, the expression in itself says it all, so to say, integration of complexity and and the challenge that we have in front of us and and I totally agree, especially you make the highlight on sexuality and the need for uh, unpacking, so to say, the implications of of that experience. What does it mean for us today? What does it mean in the context of new monasticism and in spirituality and religious? In fact, the very first episode of this podcast that I started a few months ago it was actually about sexuality because... <laughs> I felt we have to begin talking about that because that's one of the things that sometimes are talked the less uh, and in not very dynamic ways. Even again, how does it look for a monastic? I remember we we make this point in one of the talks. Like for me, and I mentioned that in my book, sexuality is not limited to the to the mere physical act, but also sexuality has to do with, in Sanskrit, we may call it kriya shakti or creative energy. So sexuality has a lot to do also with intimacy, creativity, uh, connection, ideal, even ideal physical sexuality ideally has to do with creativity, intimacy, and connection. And if I am a monk of the classical type, as I am, not, even though I'm not engaging in physical sexuality as part of my vows, nonetheless, I have this sexual energy, so to say, in me, creative energy, and I need to express creativity, intimacy, and connection in some way for me to not be dysfunctional in my monastic life. So, so I, we were presenting that particular approach to the idea of sexuality, like, okay, let's talk about this in these three terms, connection, uh, intimacy, and creativity, and what we are doing with those principles, whether we are classical monastics, new monastics, and, and in connection to the physical act itself as well, but but also to redeem that sacred, of course, act and energy. So anyhow, I appreciated that as well. I, you know, Father Keating, Thomas Keating used to talk about sexuality that way. I mean, for him, mm. sexual energy was the energy of um, connection, whether mm. whatever it was, whether it was friendship or with an intimate partner or, uh, you know, a monk is there or a spiritual teacher and their students in the creative act. It's, it's our... And I think at certain points in the journey, as you begin to see this, it, 
you begin to see it like clearly that it actually is. It's just the sexual energy. It's the energy that connects us to everyone and everything, hmm. you know, and that creates new life. And so becoming okay with that inside yourself um, and allowing, I guess, a certain kind of um, freedom for it to flow and put you in the uncomfortable situations in order that it can integrate in a complexified way or a transformed way into divinity, I think requires like what you talked about, the fearlessness, hmm. you know, that you can put yourself in, allow certain situations where in some ways, you know, your awareness is there, but you're also dependent on a deeper divinity or the compassion and love that flows to begin to integrate that sexuality in a really healthy way uh, mm -hmm. for the world and for life. And I think, you know, that's really the key, whether whatever kind of monasticism we're talking about, whether it's celibacy or whether you are, you know, engaged in physical sexual intimacy, uh, the process, I'm not sure, you know, looks maybe different in some specificities, but there's other ways like this where it's the same, you know, the same type of transformation and integration of these energies so they can serve others. Mm, yeah. I love the connection you made between fearlessness and sexuality, so to say, because in one sense to engage in sexuality in any of its forms, as I mentioned, sexuality implies uh, intimacy and intimacy. We may be terrified about intimacy, we may be terrified about nakedness, not only physical one, but being naked, being open, being vulnerable. Real sexuality has to do with being vulnerable to one another, being seen for what we are. And that requires fearlessness. I mean, you have to be fearless to enter into that space <laughs> of vulnerability, of intimacy, of being open to that type of connection. So I think these two concepts that I we that came in our conversation as so interactive and crucial to one another, fearlessness and sexuality understood in, in every possible way and fearlessness and so crucial for the monastic and how to venture into this journey of connectivity and intimacy and vulnerability. But that requires, yeah, courage. That requires yeah. uh, fearlessness, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's such an important point. And, you know, maybe it's worth mentioning that... It, certainly in my experience and how I would view it overall, this idea of, um, uh, you know, integrating our sexuality, say in a new monastic context where you're living in the world, possibly with an intimate partner. Um, you know, a lot of people will have this view of it, you know, Tantra is everywhere today. You know, it's kind of like this beautiful, amazing sexuality. You get to have sex, you get to do this and it's all beautiful. I, I want to, um, you know, just be very clear that that is not what we're talking about. Something like that might be possible in certain contexts, certain ways, transformation, but that's not, that's not the basis of the journey. And that's not what we're talking about. And what it will be much more like is very painful and full of suffering and difficulty uh, to put yourself out there in a fearless way, in a vulnerable way. Um, it's, and it's just as countercultural and revolutionary as celibacy. You know, celibacy is not is one way of dealing with the sexual energy to try and use it for transformation. If you're going to be in the world and open to the activation of it in a physical, intimate setting, um, 
you don't get away from that counterculturalness at all. It's not some great celebration. It's often very difficult. Uh, other people may not understand it, partners, but to continue to allow it to flow under the guidance of your journey is where this fearlessness comes in. And that is how we begin to integrate our sexuality, whether we're being celibate or not, I think. Um, you know, and so it's, it's not some kind of different, wonderful, you know, journey. I think it probably looks very similar, similar levels of difficulty, similar levels of integration of mm -hmm. having to deal with the, the dangers of it. Uh, and, you know, ultimately you deal with the dangers of it when, as you're guided in your spiritual life, you're allowed to, you know, let doors open a little bit more while standing in it, you know, without losing your commitments or your, or your, you know, spiritual disciplines. Hmm. Um, so I just think that's an important point to make and to understand for people who do want to try and undertake, uh, you know, this kind of radical transformation of, of our yeah. entire being. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> and, and I hope the audience also appreciates that because it's important. So they don't say like, oh, you didn't tell me that before. So no, it's, that's in the, in the contract and not with small letters. Dr. Rasa Dasi shared one comment that somehow summarizes what you just said, Rory. She's saying, I appreciate the point to allow an uncomfortable situation to transform our understanding and experience. So yeah, mm -hmm. basically we are talking about that in this particular connection. And since we touch upon this idea of, okay, how an uncomfortable situation or not uncomfortable like bad, but just outside of our comfort zone, outside of what we are used to, may allow for a new layer or degree of experience. I'd like to touch upon the topic of, although it's not necessarily fully connected, but also it's always connected to our main theme. You are very much, Rory, also invested into what we may call interfaith dialogue. No, you have had this wonderful experience with these no mass conferences. So, I mean, for me, that's also an interesting idea of being unsettled in the sense of if I, in my tradition, I expose myself to other traditions, I have to leave my comfort zone where I'm sure about how everything is said and done and, and be open to the realizations of other people. And I need to trust the experience of these other traditions uh, so I can make them, them my own. So to see if I am to benefit from that dialogue at all, I have to be, again, open, vulnerable, naked, uh, fearless. <laughs> because if not, we'll be the two of us like this trying to defeat each other. At, and that's not, there's no dialogue to begin with. It's just simultaneous monologue. So, so I don't know if you would like to share a few words about to begin with about your own experience in this connection, how this the interfaith dynamics create this, I don't know, different people from different traditions get together and end up being enriched by each other, but by allowing this openness, by getting out outside of this comfort zone and embracing the, the unknown potential of what may happen if we are fearless in, into allowing other tradition to inform us, so to say. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question, Swami. Um, said I love to talk about new monasticism and then inner spirituality. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so what I'm thinking of is relating this to your points that you make so strongly mm -hmm. in the book about the journey of our humanity. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I'll swing back around to this. So you talk about um, one, the uniqueness of each human journey and its transformative potential and personality. Uh, and also how what we're really coming into is the fullness of our humanity. So our humanity has to stay with us the whole way. Mm. And so I would describe, you, you called it interfaith dialogue, but I would actually describe it as inner spiritual dialogue. And I think that's an important difference. Um, you know, interfaith dialogue has been going on for a long time and you can find uh, you know, lots of examples in history, but especially in the last, you know, 50 years or so as our world has converged as Tehar. Wow. <laughs> um, in an interfaith dialogue, you're kind of getting together in some with different traditions and often, you know, it might be to discover more about another tradition or share an interfaith dinner uh, and each person might speak about their tradition. Mm. Uh, and is there in some sense as a representative of a tradition. In inner spiritual dialogue, the shift is that the entire conversation and dialogue becomes now first about the spiritual journey, the transformative journey and contemplative life. And then it becomes about your own personal experience and perspective on that transformative journey. And so what happens is we tend to meet in inner spiritual dialogue best done in smaller groups. Mm -hmm. You know, so often our dialogues are 12 or 13 people over say five days at a monastery or other retreat setting. And in that context, you can really dig into different topics on the journey, but the center of it is this human journey, each of our journeys of transformation, which are inflected by our traditions and by the teachings that we take on and by, you know, the guides that we have had. But ultimately we are sharing from a very personal level, our own experiences of transformation, of spiritual life, of spiritual disciplines, of various topics so that the traditions are present, lineages are present in those dialogues, but they come then you can't hide behind your tradition in a sense mm -hmm. you have to, it's really about your own per spiritual journey and then that's what the dialogue so it's you kind of have to take off the mask as a teacher and then just show up as a human being who is embedded in this tradition and has this perspective and then really sharing about our experiences as we go through that. And I think that opens, you know, some really marvelous things happen in those contexts where not only do the individual people meet, but also the lineages and traditions we're carrying often and their spiritual energies mm. also begin to meet on many levels and in many dimensions of being. And I think this is leading to possibly a new paradigm of how we view religions and our traditions, where they're much more intimate with one another. Practitioners are much more intimate with each other across traditions. In some sense where we all become monks, as you describe it in the first line in your book on radical monasticism, that you know we're inventively expressing our own nature and vocation in the context of intimate fellowship. Mm. And that this doesn't stop at the borders of our traditions in any way whatsoever, but it's a calling for all of us as human beings with each other. And that, you know, we, we the flourishing and what could emerge out of that, I think, you know, we're not sure, but it's a, it's a, it's one of the things I think is necessary 
to lead us into a transformed world. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I don't know what will happen as a result of that, as you say, but at least for me, it sounds sounds exciting. It sounds promising, and it sounds like, a, in many ways, like the future of spirituality in general. No, to how much capacity do we have to to engage in this type of cross pollination, as I like also to call it in my book. And I appreciated the difference that you made between interfaith and interspiritual dialogue, because yeah. I, and I actually, when I said interfaith, I ref, I meant what you refer to an inter as interspiritual dialogue. But again, generally we use these words, and it, they mean something for us in general. So I appreciate the clarification and and the importance, as you already mentioned before, of meeting with each other without masks. Not as okay, I will school you about what my tradition says about this, and now it's your turn. So now it's your turn, and it becomes more like a bureaucratic parade or something <laughs> instead of as you mentioned like a very intimate sharing from one's personal journey so we have to have a personal journey to begin with in order to engage in that conversation so so it's challenging in a healthy way in that sense that if you don't have anything to share about your personal journey but kind of speak a lot about your tradition then you're using your tradition to to not engage in a personal journey and the whole purpose of a tradition is the personal journey that you can engage in. So, so I, I really appreciate that. And, and I really, yeah, wonder, I mean, I, I've not been as involved as you have been in terms of interspiritual dynamics, but what I've gone through so far, the last few years or so, I will say more actively beyond it, before that it was more myself studying books from different traditions and becoming inspired by that. But in the last years, I've been a little bit more practically interacting and having meetings and exchanges with people, of course, again, like you, like Richard Rohr and many others that I'm trying to invite, especially this month in my podcast. Uh, and I personally, as I try to describe in one section of my book, when I talk about theological cross-pollination is I felt so much enriched. I mean, I felt that this quote-unquote other traditions <laughs> are helping me to go deeper into my own traditions. So at one point, I wonder how much should I call them other traditions? Mm -hmm. uh, because again, they are words, but they create this like, that's another tradition. But if those traditions are helping me to re return, so to say to my tradition, refresh anew and rediscover it with new eyes, I wonder how much I can talk about those traditions as other traditions. You know, I remember last last episode I did with Ilya Delio, and I was talking at one point, I don't recall about which particular topic. I don't know if about the concept of Lila or like love being the goal of life for us and for God as well. But the point is that Ilya was hearing and he was like accepting everything. And at the end said, I think I'm a Hindu, she said. <laughs> and naturally for me came well every time i hear you talking Ilya, i think i'm a christian then because uh, so, so we are so much nourishing each other that again at one point it's it's the, the lines that divide one tradition for and from the other start to blur and as you mentioned maybe that's a future the future of of, of spirituality in the sense of people this new paradigm where people are more acquainted, more familiar, more comfortable with 
even if they have a particular tradition, they are able to be familiar with other tradition, to coexist, to, to feel them as nuanced extensions of their own tradition from other perspectives. So yeah. anyhow, I feel it's a very important point to make. Yeah. Nowadays. It makes me makes me think of um, you know the idea of love. So Father Thomas used to Keating used to say, hmm. yeah, it's not enough to tolerate other traditions. It's not enough to just know them, but we have to learn to love them. Mm-hmm. And when we really, and then I'm making the connection with loving. I you know personalism is is the the core of your work, right? And hmm. and it, in it you mentioned at one point Tehard de Chardin's. Uh, Pierre Thierry de Chardin's, the paleontologist, uh, Catholic priest, uh, evolutionary thinker, um, notion of superpersonalism, which is the you know this idea of individuation, and that you know we, when we become transformed into God, we don't all become kind of copies of each other; we become superpersonalized. But as he describes it, as Tehar does that, you know the the analogy he uses is falling in love with someone. Mm. And that when you're truly in love with someone and it's authentic, deep love, you kind of, you in one sense, lose yourself, you know, in them. And in another sense, you're never more yourself than when you're in love with someone. It's actually that love that allows you to be most yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think of this in the context you're talking about that, you know, in the intimacy of inner spirituality traditions spiritual lineages don't lose they don't disappear and all just become one path mm-hmm. they fall in love with each other mm-hmm. and you know and they're able to be most fully themselves then and with each other you know and that this is just what happens and sometimes falling in love has consequences you have you create new life mm-hmm. and you have children and now you have responsibilities for those, you know, the consequences that weren't necessarily part of the initial falling in love. This is kind of more the road I see of the future mm. where the traditions, the lineages are still, they're established more in their core and in themselves and actually greater intimacy among them allows for that to take place as well as the birth of new possibilities. People mm. who go across traditions or mm-hmm. new paradigm even for how we think about what religion is, how mm. we how we organize ourselves according to religions, who knows, but that greater, I'm convinced that that intimacy is something we're called to today and is a doorway to a greater future, transformative future for humanity. Oh, I I love the analogy you make with falling in love and how a tradition can fall in love with, again, other tradition and, and that implies both being lost unfound so to say not in love that we will in our tradition will say yes Heige's ideal is self-forgetfulness in divine love so in that self-forgetfulness it means you are not aware of yourself you are lost to yourself but you are yourself as much as you can be basically what you are saying and and yeah falling in love with other traditions doesn't mean that we may not have some differences because that's part of love also <laughs> no? Because I made that point just in case, because sometimes we have a very too idyllic idea of what this meant to fall in love, that we will agree on everything and everything is the same. And again, everything became the one single thing and diversity was lost. And we are not talking about that here. There may be different opinions and even differences. And the challenges, as you mentioned, is uh, 
I will say to, as, as Thomas Keating said, we are not only to tolerate other traditions, but the actual challenges or to learn from them, but to love them. And I will say, despite we may disagree, so on some things, again, on the foundational things, we, we are falling in love with each other. And on certain aspects, we may have differences of opinion. And, and I think the challenge for any genuine new monastic or spiritual practitioners try to love those you disagree with no not not only okay we can agree that we disagree no I, let's try to love those i disagree with no that's i mean that will be another way of christ jesus saying love your enemies basically no yeah. so so but 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 yeah for me that's included in the equation you are mentioning no like okay falling in, in love with other tradition and as you mentioned, what's, what's the result of that? What's, which are the implications of that? Which will be the, the progeny coming as a result of that? And for many people, that may be unsettling, and they may get nervous, and they may get scared and go back to the usual boxes and labels and so-called security of, this is my tradition, these are the, the other ones, and I'm being saved here and that. But again, all these paradigms are becoming more and more obsolete basically you know so their, their, their collapse is a clear symptom that we need a, a more integrative embrace of what 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 does it mean to basically to be a, a religious person basically yeah yeah i think thinking of something that um uh, father cyprian consiglio i don't know if you've ever met him oh. talks about uh he's the what, what's his name again uh cyprian consiglio Okay. And he's the prior of New Kamaldoli Hermitage. I can write his name in the chat here. He has some great books on okay, thank you. Christianity. I think that's pretty close. Should be right. <laughs> um, he's the prior of New Kamaldoli, but he talks about, and I'm not going to remember his words exactly. He uses like scopos and topos. and But he says he makes a kind of... Um, you know, a difference between sort of the end game that a lot of traditions will talk about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether that's union with God or awakening to divine reality or in the Gaudiya tradition, you know, this kind of divine participation in heaven. Um, but when it comes to the process of getting there, most of contemplative traditions have lots of similarities, you know, mm -hmm. We pray on malas or beads. We meditate in silence. We have teachers. We have a sangha. There's a daily practice. There's chanting. There's so much similarity in the processes of transformation across traditions that what you really learn to fall in love with is the, um, the capacity for our traditions to invoke transformation hmm. as practitioners into more loving compassionate, wise human beings. And we don't have to worry as much about the end game. In fact, that can be in some ways a, a mystery, you know, maybe we don't, that's, but the steps to become more loving, more wise, to mitigate negativity, these we need to celebrate across traditions. And that's, that's that that we fall in love with is their capacity to create people like Father Thomas Keating or, you know, or the Dalai Lama or a Ramakrishna or that these are human capacities that are being nurtured mm -hmm. and that we can, um, you know, be in respectful difference on the end games or in a kind of sense of 
creative unfolding and you know, I often think that we're more like um, astrophysicists staring up at the night sky. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like it's uh, it's so beautiful and almost an infinite expanse of possibility. And we know so little, even in our kind of greatest experiences, that at these very furthest reaches, what's going on, you know, can kind of play out over time. But when we just look at the processes of transformation, there's so much similarity so much overlap and so much to celebrate and love, you know, in all of our contemplative traditions. And I kind of, I kind of make my mark there because other aspects of religion, I'm much more, you know, unsure of, but uh, the contemplative lineages uh, is that we can go about becoming more loving, compassionate, wise, more attuned to the deepest nature of reality. Um, that to me is where the real fruit is. Yeah. Yeah. And we and we can never emphasize them enough and we can never celebrate them enough, so to say, in, in relation to how common they are to the underlying current of any mystical school, as you mentioned. I mean, in my own studies of different traditions also have been so much amazed and overwhelmed. Like I find I'm finding even to the point of finding statements in in the Bible and other tradition that I said, we have our own statement, our own tradition that is basically a copy paste of that verse. And I'm with that, I'm not saying someone is copying the other. I'm saying again, how these different mystics from different traditions are reaching these common places and common converging points and realizations and intuitions about or, or divine inspiration about how to approach reality in the most comprehensive way in terms of the of the attributes and the virtues and the principles you have depicted, which are basically golden rules in every tradition. No? It's not only that, I don't know, this tradition have their golden rule. We don't have any golden rule. I mean, I can find similar verses in all of them emphasizing humility and tolerance and compassion and dedication and, and, and trust. And again, fearlessness and vulnerability and so on and so forth. So, so I, I think many of us need to be exposed on a daily basis more and more to these commonalities to, to become more and more aware of this underlying similarity and in our own inner conception bridge those gaps. So we start to see each other with more, more generosity and again, more as a part of the same project so to say as, this, as the same whole and the interconnectedness that is joining us all because that's I will say one of the main isolating principles nowadays purpose crisis meaning crisis because of lacking this um, perception and awareness of how how much we are all engaged in under the same umbrella so to say yeah. <laughs> yes yes I think that's very important and we've had a pendulum swing today right where a lot of difference is emphasized uh, for a lot of good reasons. Mm. It's, you know, in terms of identities, everything from racial, cultural, uh, gender, sexuality, religious. Um, and, you know, that, that's for important reasons that sometimes those get left behind or they become ways of um, not looking at injustices in our world. But at the same time, to just emphasize those and to not recognize our commonality in the common human project, um, particularly from this contemplative perspective where it really is about transformation. 
into divinity, into love, into compassion, into alignment with the deepest nature of reality, um, you know, is it's at the heart of all contemplative journeys and at the heart of contemplative experience, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as we go through it, I think a recognition that we really aren't separate and that we could be born in different circumstances and under different possibilities that we're capable of anything as human beings. Mm-hmm. And so to be humble and grateful that we found a spiritual path and do our best to be committed to it doesn't say anything great about us, but is kind of um, a humble acceptance of the situation we find ourselves in. But it doesn't mean you're any better than anyone else or that you wouldn't be doing what anyone else is doing if you were, if you had different experiences that were shaping us. Yeah. Yes. As I like to say, we, as we have a, bri- a very bright, beautiful potential, we also have a very dark potential if we just choose to go in that direction. So we should be humbled. <laughs> By both, no, the brightest potential, which is the divine blessing, we are humbled by that, and the possibility for messiness <laughs> and yeah. doing everything wrong, we should be humbled by that. And so, whatever the case, we should remain humbly, <laughs> acknowledging who we are, who we can be, and of course, feeling grateful and fortunate for for whatever gifts we are receiving. So, Rory, we are almost reaching the end of our conversation, but before concluding, I'd like to ask you, I don't know if there's anything else you may like to share that we may have skipped or something you may like to share by as a closing, some main point or some post you would like to pound a little bit more, whatever comes to your heart. If there is anything, you already shared a lot for sure. You know... I mean, nothing is coming up for me. This was a wonderful conversation, Swami, and I, I feel like we covered a lot of territory and I feel very grateful for the opportunity and just, you know, the enjoyment of being in conversation with you, uh, which is lovely. It was lovely when you were out here visiting and lovely now. Um, yeah, I guess if anything is coming up for me at the end, it's more kind of the importance of these kinds of conversations. Um you know, where we are meeting as colleagues and peers and are able to kind of share some of our experience, but I think is probably also um, helpful to others who might be able to hear it or see it. Um, In doing so without the, you know, I feel no barrier between us in terms of me not being a Gaudiya monk Mm-hmm. Or being this or that where there's difference but there's not like in terms of our conversation it's not a barrier <laughs> um so i'm just thankful for that and thankful for your work doing this and for being here and i i hope it's i hope it's helpful either in a in a in a good way or helpful in a way where someone, you know, doesn't like it and can go do, you know, find a different way for them, but in some way that it, it kind of, it serves this process of unfolding. Thank you. Are. Yeah. By seeing some of the commenters here, I could say that they are finding that helpful. You know, Michelle is saying this conversation is so heart opening and Dr. Asa thanking us brother so much for beautiful sharing and so on. So, and it has been equally helpful nourishing for me and I totally agree with you Rory that even if there may be any differences which always there are some differences because that's 
diversity is the spice of life, but as I like to say, too much spice in the masala may ruin the whole meal, so we have to keep <laughs> the balance in place. But if properly in place, differences are not only not barriers, but even are like ornamentations, no? like I, I are adding to the underlying unity, common unity we are sharing. So yeah. for me, for me, it's equally nourishing and, and revealing to have these interactions with with friends and brothers like you. So I'm very appreciative of your contribution and your presence here. Thank you so much. And I will share again the way to contact uh, Rory for those who will like. You can visit Charis, C-H-A, charisinterspirituality.org. So you can know more about Rory McKenty's work and projects and contact him. So we'll be stopping here next Saturday. We'll be having this whole month I'm uh, open i'm inviting different friends and brothers from others quote-unquote traditions so so to say and i will be sharing with a sufi scholar a sufi professor and artist sculptor his name is patrick Beltio. he told me he knows you rory he was very happy we were talking today yeah. So, yeah okay so i'll be talking with him next saturday saturday 16th of september at 10 a.m uh, edt time and the title of our episode will be Mystery as a Living Art. So he's an artist. We'll be talking about art. And he also likes to explore the, the, the sense of divine and knowing. So we'll be talking with him about also the mystery, mystery as a living art. So again, thank you so much, Rory, one more time. Thank you so much to all of you for being connected. And to you very soon. All right. Good.